A reading from the Gospel according to Luke. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed. In his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, you are the witness of these things. And now a reading from the letter to the Romans. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So they are without excuse, for though they know God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, because they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being, or birds, or four-footed animals, or reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their, human, of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. The word of the Lord. We have a problem. The authors of the Apostles' Creed knew about this problem, and they chose to speak about this problem in the penultimate clause of their summary description of Christian faith. Just before they completed their discussion of God and Christ and humanity and the meaning of all things, they wanted to talk about their problem and our problem. Just before speaking of resurrection and eternal life, they wanted to talk about the problem. They just came out and said it. They weren't shy about it. They didn't try to pull any punches. They just said it. They talked about sin. In his magnum opus, a foundational Christian theology that occurs in the form of his letter to the Romans. Paul discusses our problem at length. For about the first 20% or so of this letter, Paul talks about the problem. He says, the wrath of God the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Paul goes on so long talking about the problem that you're tempted just to 
shut the book and move on. It's too depressing. (laughs) It's too overwhelming. Towards the middle of what we call the third chapter of his letter, he summarizes it in this way. He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. All in the past, all in the present, all in the future. All. Translated into southern, all y'all. All of usins. All. Zero exceptions have sinned. We are sinners. It should be no surprise that sin is a major topic of the whole Bible. And the Bible authors, the poets, the philosophers, the prophets, came up with so many different ways to speak about sin. Just like the Eskimos have dozens and dozens of words for snow, so does the Bible have more than several dozen words to describe sin. I looked up some lists yesterday. In the Old Testament, sin is described as missing, failing, Sin is an error, sin is a fault, sin is spiritual and moral failure. Sin is failing towards our fellow man and failing towards God. Sin is overstepping, transgressing, erring through our ignorance. Sin is wandering, straying. Sin is being willful in our disobedience and our defiance. Sin is being polluted and profane and godless and estranged from God. Sin is about our treachery, our sacrilege, our apostasy. Sin is about being perverted and malicious and wicked and guilty. Sin is about being corrupt in our inner nature. Sin means that we are like chaff or like a tossing sea. Sin means that we are violently wrong and unjust, that we're full of trouble and mischief and deceit, that we lie, that we commit slander, that we're full of pride, that we backslide, that we're full of folly, that we're unclean, that fundamentally we revolt and rebel against the Creator who made us. I abbreviated the list just because I knew you wouldn't want to sit here any longer than that. And that's just the Old Testament. The New Testament talks about sin, not surprisingly so. Most often, the word that the New Testament uses for sin is not just sin, it's hamartia. It means missing the mark. When an archer takes aim at a target and misses, that's what's called sin. But in the New Testament, sin is also about lawlessness, disobedience, ungodlessness, impiety, sacrilege, being bad, being unjust and unrighteous. According to Matthew, when Jesus was teaching the disciples how to pray, Jesus talked about sin using the word opheliamata, a debt that we owe to God that we cannot pay. 
Paul begins his description of the reality of all things in the light of God's truth as he's sharing with the Romans. And he says that we can see things of God in God's creation. Everyone has a chance to do that. Whether you know Jesus, whether you know the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, everyone has a chance to see God and to know God, but we have a problem. We choose to worship anything and everything except for God, especially we choose to worship ourselves. Our intelligence, our creativity, our power, our own will. We have a problem. The problem is so deep that we attempt to shift our focus away from the problem all the time. We say, let's focus only on the positive things. Let's kick the can down the road. Let's say lots of good things about God. True things, of course, that God is the creator. God is the savior. God is the redeemer. God is the one who gives us the gift of the church. The creed talks about all of those wonderful things, but right at the end, it brings up the problem. Sin. We have a problem. We try to solve that problem, of course. Sometimes we say, okay, we can't solve the problem of sin, so let's condone sin. Let's just agree that everybody has a different list of sins. We're powerless over it. You just go ahead and sin the way that you're sinning, and I'll go ahead and sin the way that I'm sinning, and we'll try not even to call it sin. We'll submit to sin sometimes. Say, there's nothing we can do about it. Let's just go with the flow. Or to re try to resolve the sin that's in the world by, by creating different methods of easing the pain. We seek vengeance sometime. We seek repayment sometime. Let's try to pretend as if the sin didn't exist, or if it does exist, we'll make up for it. But none of those are solutions to the fundamental problem, and they don't work. We have a problem, but God has a solution. Before we talk about the solution, though, we need to admit the problem. If there is anyone in this room who cannot find some evidence of the sin that's out there in the world, if you aren't already thinking about several things that you saw in the morning headlines, then please talk to me. I'll point out some of the evidence. And if you think you do not have a problem with sin, I really want to talk to you. It'll be fun. We have a problem, but if you're new to our worship, let me tell you right now what so many folks already in this room know. But I think one of the most important words in the scripture is not a word like faith or hope or love, but the word but. We have a problem. But God has a solution. According to Luke, one of the last things that Jesus ever said while he was here with us in the flesh, therefore one of the most important things that Jesus ever said while he was here with us in the flesh was this. Thus it is written, 
that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead, and on the third day, he will rise again. And you will preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins to be proclaimed in his name to all nations. There it is. It is written that repentance and forgiveness of sins will be shared with all nations. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Repentance and forgiveness of sins must be shared with all. And so let's talk about forgiveness now. Always holding in mind what our sin is about. You see, forgiveness never attempts to dilute or downplay the reality and the pain and the suffering and the eternal consequence of sin. In fact, I believe that it's only people who believe in the forgiveness of sin who actually have the courage to admit what sin really is. Usually in the scriptures, when we're discussing forgiveness, we also discuss repentance. Repentance is when we say, yes, we have sinned. Yes, we are sinners. Can God forgive someone who does not repent? That is God's business alone. I always remember Jesus' statement from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they don't even know what they're doing. And yet still there is repentance. I believe that the full healing power of forgiveness is realized when the sinner repents and the sinned against forgives. Forgiveness is a unique transaction in the world. Most other transactions are bargains of some sort, contracts of some sort. When we try to make restitution for our error, that's trying to repay a sin. And that's a good thing to do, by the way. When we have sinned to the extent that we can sin, we try to set it right again. But friends, you and I both know that we cannot always put it together again. When we talk about our sin, we're talking about something that has happened. It cannot be erased. It can only be dealt with in forgiveness. Because forgiveness absorbs the pain and the suffering and the offense. Forgiveness transcends and then repairs and renews the relationship between forgiver and forgivee. Forgiveness recognizes that in the end, the only rightness that can come into the world is a rightness that is freely given through grace. That's the way God does it. And that's the way that God calls us to do it. In his prayer, Jesus said, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's hard to learn to forgive. Sometimes it takes years to forgive a particular thing. But that's what we're called to. If we receive God's forgiveness in our lives. 
You know, the creed talks about a lot of wonderful things about how God made us and we can enjoy God's creation and we've got Jesus and the Spirit and the church and all that wonderful stuff. But without that last little phrase, the forgiveness of sins, the rest of us doesn't make any difference. Without God's forgiveness, there is no hope, no possibility, no power, no future. With God's forgiveness, there is hope. There is possibility. There's power to begin again. There's power to keep going. There's power to do better. That's why the two sacraments that Jesus left for us to remember him and his truth by have so much to do with forgiveness. In the waters of baptism, our sin is washed away. We are buried into uh, the, the, the death of, of an old way of life, and then we are raised up to a new way of life because we're forgiven. And then we come to the table where we remember that the reason Jesus died, the reason his body was broken and his blood was spilled was because God takes sin so seriously and God realizes that only he can deal with it in its finality that he comes to take care of it for us. We come to the table, though, not just to get something from God, we come as well to begin to learn how to give something to others. How to give our forgiveness because God's forgiveness has been given to us. You see, in the end analysis, this table is not about our guilt, but about God's grace. This table is not about our despair, but about our hope in God. This table proclaims that God does not hate us, but God loves us because God has given himself to us in Jesus. When we come, we come to celebrate that love and we come to receive that love into our very beings so that we might forgive others. Let's enjoy the feast.